Day. We're so happy that you're worshiping with us here today in the house of the Lord and Veterans Day. So we've already had some emphasis on that. You can see the flowers up here and how we are thankful for the great freedoms that we have as Americans. Isn't that true? We're going to talk along a little different wavelength today, perhaps. Still be talking about victory and still be talking about freedom, but of a little different sort. So stick with me, would you, in your Bibles in John chapter 20. And I want to call out just one of the verses that was read in your hearing a moment ago, John chapter 20. And I would like to ask you if you would notice with me verse number 15. The part that I'm really interested in comes right at the beginning, but we're going to go ahead and read the whole verse. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. We'll end our reading there, and would you join me? We're going to pray and ask God to bless us as we continue on looking into his word. Father, we are thankful today for all that you've done for us. Thank you for God's speed and safety through this past week. And Lord, help us not to take so much for granted so many things you do for us day in and day out. The Bible reminds us that you daily load us with benefits. And even as we just think of safely uh, traversing the roads, particularly in inclement weather, and uh, the many things that, that are uh, constantly a portion of your good favor to us every day, we want you to sense in our hearts this morning gratitude and praise. We thank you for America. We thank you that we don't have to fear uh, government intervention or persecution because we're meeting here today and we realize Lord there are many places around the world where that is not so even in our own country we see uh, some of the storm clouds seeming to darken in respect to the practice of Bible believing Christianity and Lord how we pray that if it please you that we may be able to live quiet lives peaceable lives able to go on and carry on the mission of meeting together and proclaiming God's word and sending people to the mission field and and uh, seeking to win people here at home. And even, Lord, uh, in our country, we pray for unity to come to us as it seems like we have so much unrest and even uh, still some uh, tailwinds of this election, things that haven't been resolved and some acrimony there. Uh, Father, we realize that much of this is the result of our having strayed from you. And we pray that somehow you would bring us back to our moorings, help us to remember those values that this nation was founded by, Help us to remember what made us great under God and uh, to turn to those things afresh and anew. And I just pray, Father, that you would bless us now. Thank you for each person who's out today. Pray that as we look into yet another story in the Gospels that involves the Lord Jesus Christ, it involves one of those memorable questions that he asked, that you would use that question to work in our hearts and to make us aware of those things that uh, really are to impact our lives every day. And I pray these things now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is. We're looking at another one of those penetrating questions of Jesus, as I have styled them this morning. You find it in verse number 15. Actually, if you find verse 13, the angels ask Mary the same question. Woman, why weepest thou? But when we get to Jesus and verse number 15, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? This is maybe a text of scripture that you would be thinking, well, we would pull this one out or we would have a message on this maybe on Easter Sunday. And it would certainly be appropriate for that. I guess the thing that I really want to drive at today is for us to realize that the, true, the things that are true and the things that we celebrate every Easter and every Lord's Day are to have a bearing and an impact on our lives every day. 
It's not for no reason, folks, if you think about this for a moment, that we worship on the first day of the week. And sometimes we, we just use the familiar term and we talk about the Sabbath, but you know, really we're not worshiping on the Sabbath. We're worshiping on what we call Sunday, but more particularly the Bible name for it would be the Lord's Day. And the reason that we do this is because this is the day that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And we are entering now into that very, one of those very stories given to us in the gospel in which Jesus is making his first resurrection appearance. That's sort of notable, isn't it? Um, you know, it's vogue today to talk about certain subjects that uh, a little have a little maybe political enhancer to it, and I, I'm certainly not going in that direction. I just think it's kind of interesting. If you were looking to develop a, a sermon series on women in the Bible, you'd sure have a lot to preach about. That's for certain. But I think I would certainly choose to talk about Mary Magdalene as one of those people. But Mary Magdalene has the distinction. Mark chapter 16 and verse 9 tells us this. She has the distinction of being the first person, and it's a woman, the first person to whom Jesus Christ appeared after he was risen from the dead. He asks her a question. This is a deeply powerful and personal moment because it's basically a one-on-one. -on -one. There's no crowd here. There's no multitude here. It's just Jesus and Mary. And Jesus turns to her and asks her this probing question, Woman, why weepest thou? And of course, I think the point that Jesus is driving at and what I want to talk about today, and this sort of helps us to understand where victory and those types of things are coming in, is, is that what Jesus is reminding her and reminding us through her is that Christianity is a religion of victory and joy and hope, not the opposite. And the thing that makes that true is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Maybe a little story that will sort of help to focus on this. There's a story that's told about a man who was a, an African Muslim. And he had accepted Christ as Savior and had become a Christian. Whereupon, as you can imagine, some of his friends were rather curious as to why he had made that decision to switch from Islam to Christianity. And he said, well, it's like this. He said, you're walking along a road. And he said... Unbeknownst to you, you suddenly come to a fork in the road. You're not certain which way to go. There are two men standing there. One of them is alive and one of them is dead. Which one would you ask for directions? And when we think about the fact that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, we recognize this is the thing that Christianity has. This is what makes Christianity a religion of joy and hope and uh, victory. It is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. I think we can maybe do the best job of trying to get this story right out in front and seeing how this is supposed to affect us by looking, first of all, at Mary before the question and then Mary after the question. Well, we're going to talk a lot about emotion today, but before we get to this, emotion is kind of the key thing that's really controlling this, right? Because both the angels and Jesus ask Mary, why are you weeping? But before we get to that, I really want to take a moment to pay some respect and homage to Mary because this is a woman of significant devotion in the Bible. She is a woman that really merits a sermon all on uh, itself, just as a character study of of, of Mary. As I said earlier, she's the first person. This, this can't be happenstance. This has to be by divine appointment and selection that Mary is singled out. What do you think would be 
the factor or maybe the reason for this in what you know of Mary. And I would have to say that I think it's probably because of the heartfelt devotion. This would certainly at least be one reason. The heartfelt devotion for which Mary is known and is so obvious in the story in the Bible. You know, we meet Mary in Luke chapter 8, where we find kind of an interesting detail. There in Luke chapter 8, verses 1, 2, and 3, you have a little mention there where it's talking about a group of women, and about three, four, uh, three, four, five maybe of them are mentioned there. We won't turn in the interest of time, but Mary is one of them. This particular group of women, the Bible tells us, Luke says, were following Jesus out of Galilee, and they ministered to him out of their substance. That's the phrase that's used there. Well, these women were all women whose lives had been transformed by Jesus Christ. And therefore, out of a heart of love and devotion, they were following him. And when it says that they ministered to him out of their substance, this would mean that whatever means they had, they pretty much made available to try to sustain the ongoing work. You have to remember that Jesus wasn't exactly rich. Foxes have holes, Jesus said, and the birds of the of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And so Jesus had all sorts of people whom God raised up to see to it that the daily needs uh, of, of ongoing ministry were met. Mary was among, but Mary is a woman, the Bible says, out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. Now think about that for a moment. If you think about why someone would be rejoicing, why, why someone would be devoted, why someone would really understand what the work of Christ is, what freedom is, what victory is, to be so incredibly, cruelly, horribly oppressed by Satan, and then to find in Jesus Christ Savior, Deliverer, Friend, Liberator, Conqueror, to find all of those things, well, it's no wonder that she was devoted to him in the way that she is. You're not going to really have to turn. In fact, the next little scene that I want to point out to you talking about Mary's devotion is probably a, just about across the page from where you are. And look over in John chapter 19, verse 25, and here the Bible says this. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister. There's another woman here, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and then the last one is Mary Magdalene. Well, this is kind of interesting. Four women, right? Well, what's interesting about this, where are the disciples? Well, they, <laughs> they, sort of, they sort of forsook him and fled, right? I mean, thinking about what happened in the evening before and thinking about Peter's denial and the fact that they all, the Bible says, forsook him and fled. And yet at this moment of truth when uh, it would be called upon to make the greatest sacrifice to be identified with Jesus, there at the cross where the angry, angry people are and those who are rejecting him and those who have put him on the cross, here you have a, a group of four women who are with him to the very end. And so again, we see this idea of her devotion following through. Some other details are given to us about this uh, in Matthew's gospel and also in Mark's gospel. We're told that, that Mary persevered. Mary stayed. She watched as Joseph of Arimathea came and, and got permission from Pilate and the body was taken down off the cross. And then she the Bible says she sat over across the way. Matthew is the one who tells us that she was sitting there across the way, beholding the place where the body of Jesus was laid, right to the very end. Now, you have to remember, the next day is going to be the Sabbath day. And so the women have in mind resting on the Sabbath day, but then they have in mind, just to try to get you to remember what the Easter story is going to be like, 
they have in mind coming back on the first day of the week to anoint the body of Jesus. The only real question they have is who is going to roll away the, the stone? That's the big question they have. But that's where we find the story here in the beginning of John chapter 20. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene. Now John sees fit to focus on Mary. We're not told so much about the other women, but the other women are obviously a part of this because if you look down a little bit later in verse number 2, it says, Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre. And look at what it says next. And we know not where they have laid him. So she's a part of this other group of women. Somehow they've gotten separated the one from the other, at least where we join the story in verse number uh, 11. But they've come early in the morning to do this, which I think, again, represents that devotion on their part. And Mary comes to do that. They come bringing spices early in the morning, hoping to anoint the body of Jesus. And in John's account of the story, she remains, which is where we pick up the story in verse number 11, after the others have gone to try to find the disciples and Jesus. And so I really feel like it's remiss if we don't talk a little bit about her devotion and sort of put a little bit of that background in there. But the thing that we really need to talk about, the thing that's really the focus of all of this, of course, is the great emotional aspect that's going on here. Mary is weeping, and I would say we probably aren't going to exaggerate a whole lot if we say that she's weeping uncontrollably. Maybe that's very strong for us, but she is sobbing, very much, very much crying there at the tomb of Jesus. And I think we, we, we just want to take a few moments to try to understand this a little bit more it would be pretty easy to understand, I think, a lot of this, really. She's weeping. She's in tears. Certainly the emotion of distress is in play here. I'm going to guess, looking at this audience this morning, that pretty much everybody here has been a part, one way or another, maybe not some of the youngest ones, but of losing a loved one. That's pretty distressing. Some of you have lost a spouse. Some of you have lost a child. Um, Pretty much all of us have lost a sibling or a mother or a father along the way in life. Those aren't easy moments for us, are they? And we have ourselves many times come to those times and we have found whether it's that or some other circumstance in life that brings a great deal of distress into our lives and we find that we are weeping. Now, one of the reasons that I say uncontrollably is she doesn't recognize Jesus. Now, it's true that when Jesus appeared uh, later that, that day to uh, the, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says he appeared to them in another form. They didn't recognize him either. But here's something you might want to think about for a moment. Um, I, I, this comes to me as a hunting illustration, but I suppose other things could drive this. You know, it's kind of interesting. Sometimes if you're, if you're out and there's any wind blowing, if you ever notice if depending on what angle you're at and how that wind is hitting you, it'll make your eyes water. <laughs> it really, I mean, I have had myself in a situation, not yesterday, but uh, the week before, where I had three deer come out later in the afternoon, and I was trying to watch these deer. Well, unfortunately, I'm trying to look this way at these deer. The wind's coming right in my face, and I'm literally at the place. I'm holding binoculars up, and I'm literally, you'd think that that would give me the protection. If anything, it seemed like that made it worse. I'm literally at the place where, like, tears are coming down. 
And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know that I could see the shoot if I had to with all those tears. And I think this is perhaps a factor in this that she doesn't recognize who the Lord is. But there's a great deal of distress. I remember years ago when uh, it was in the 1996, really, I think the year was, the ministry there in Huntington that we lost a man in our church. And I didn't really realize this until later, but that every time after that, um, if we would sing the song or I would select the song, Does Jesus Care? It always made his widow cry. And when I found that out, then I didn't pick that song for a while. And then after a while, I kind of thought to myself, well, we, we kind of have to get to the place where we can use the song. But uh, you know that third stanza, does Jesus care when we've said goodbye to the dearest on earth, to us? You know that, and it's, it's really true. So whether distress comes into our lives as a result of, of losing a loved one, which Jesus certainly is to her, she was so devoted to him, or whether it's another matter in life that brings the tears, we can all understand distress. I think a second thing is the body is missing. Again, this is something you have to realize. She's, she's not coming for the risen Lord. She, that, that hasn't dawned on her yet. She's coming for the body. That's what the whole thing's about. They are coming to anoint the body of Jesus. It's a simple mission. It's one last, it's one last act of homage that she wants to pay to her Lord. And she gets there and the body's gone. I don't know if you ever really thought about it that way for a moment, but think about how that would leave you feeling. The body is missing and she can't even complete the simple mission. Look at verse 2. Then she runneth and cometh. I just, I'm trying to show you how the whole emphasis in her mind is on the body. Then she cometh, and verse, she runneth, verse number 2, and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto him, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Look at verse 13. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. You see how it's always the body. And even in verse 15, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. It's, it's everything is about the body. It's, it's all about this simple thing that's so big to her to be able to come and to pay that final uh, act of reverence and devotion to the Lord. And now it's like there's despair floods her soul. What is she going to do? She can't, she's been, been, been hindered even from accomplishing that simple mission. And then thirdly, this one, this Jesus who had given her a new life. We talked about this earlier. He delivered her from the oppression of seven demons and upon whom she had placed and pinned all of her hopes this entire new life she had been following him ministering to him out of her substance and now do you notice how she puts this she says my lord look there in verse number 13 woman why weepest thou she saith unto them because they have taken away my lord do you notice the personal emphasis that's in that expression they have taken away my lord this one who is so dear to me this one upon whom i have pinned my hopes and had uh, been given a new life and it's as if this is it's as if disappointment is too is not a strong enough word maybe even defeat is the word that we want to use here and a little bit like those two that were on the road to Emmaus it, we trusted that it had been he which would have redeemed Israel and it's almost like these feelings overwash her was this too good to be true was this 
her hopes have been dashed. So that's, that's before. That's the Mary before. What happens after Jesus speaks to her? Well, you know, earlier in the story, there are actually the story in this chapter. We didn't read the earlier verses, but there's actually the story here of two people who came to the full understanding of what the resurrection was that day, and one is John himself. John comes to that understanding and comes to that full, full faith and belief by seeing the grave clothes. If you go look at verse number 8, then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. And the next verse explains this to us by saying, for as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. See, in spite of all the number of times that Jesus had told them this, that he was going to go to Jerusalem, suffer, be betrayed, be crucified, and rise again the third day, they didn't really understand that. But somehow, as John comes to that grave, and he sees those grave clothes, he sees them all lying there, he sees the, the face cloth lying separately in a place by itself, and realizes that this is not the work of grave robbers. This is something different. And the Spirit of God all at once communicates to his heart what that really me means. So John comes to it by seeing the grave clothes. Mary comes to it by hearing, now watch, not just Jesus' voice. She comes to it when Jesus called her name. Now, to me, that's kind of a, a really interesting distinction to make. You see, the angels have already asked her this question, but that's the angels. Jesus comes and asks her the same question. She doesn't recognize Jesus at this point. In fact, she thinks it's the gardener, and obviously she didn't expect the gardener to know her name. She uses a term of polite respect to the gardener. She says, sir if thou have borne him hence, which would be exactly how you would treat someone where you really didn't have a close personal relationship. She didn't say, oh, George, uh, what have you done with the body? It, it, it was, wasn't that kind of a situation. She didn't expect this gardener that she thought Jesus was to know her name. Instead, when Jesus says one simple word to her, Mary, it's like a light comes on. I really find that interesting because if you go back, I'll read this, but if you want the reference, John chapter 10, I find this intensely interesting because John chapter 10 is the, the, the chapter that we have in the Bible where it's recorded for us about the good shepherd, the whole story about the good shepherd. And it says in verse number two, to him the porter openeth and the sheep hear his voice and he calleth his own sheep by name and he leadeth them out. Well, this is certainly an example of that. He knew her name. Verse 4 says, And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. But it was his saying of her name. And in a moment of time, it's like the, the situation has become totally and completely transformed. It takes me aside a little bit from the, the, the thrust, uh, to some extent, of the message, but I think it's important for us to, to look at why this why, why, the, why everything that happens, why everything that, the effect of all of Jesus' words, what's really going on here? And, and, and maybe this has even been a little bit confusing to, to you in times past, but verse number 17, Jesus says unto her, touch me not. Well, there's been a lot of ideas about this because it doesn't seem natural for Jesus 
to be saying, touch me not, when in fact he had invited on other occasions people to touch him, handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Till we start looking at this a little more closely and realize that probably a better way to bring out the significance of this term would not be to translate it to touch, but to cling or to grasp. So obviously what's happened is, once again, emotions are really the focus of this. As she hears her name and she realizes that this, realizes that this is Jesus and she realizes that he has been raised from the dead, she obviously reaches out to embrace him. Unnatural? No, completely natural. In fact, if you think about it, that's a lot the way our relationships in this life are, which is the whole point, our relationships in this life. We come to church and... The Bible talks about greeting one another with a holy kiss. I'm kind of glad we don't do that one. I'm good with a handshake, you know, but uh, obviously uh, displays of affection of that type of thing. Uh, all societies have them, whether they embrace and kiss on both cheeks or whether they shake hands or whether sometimes we give someone a hug. And it's kind of interesting if we're going to talk about this, if we were to go back to John chapter 13, John, who's writing this gospel, he's the very one whose head is reposing on Jesus, King James says, bosom, at the Last Supper. So even the way in which the disciples related to their Lord during his earthly sojourn had a component of the physical. I'm not talking about any component of the physical that's inappropriate. I'm talking about that which is completely appropriate. We all understand this. God has made us this way. But you know, when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, those things weren't going to be true any longer because it would only be another 50 days and Jesus wouldn't be with them any longer. Well, you know what? You can't just hug Jesus today. You can't just walk up and shake hands with Jesus today, can you? You can't walk in and lay your eyes on Jesus today. So we have a different relationship with Jesus, no less real. Why can I say no less real? It's just different. It's different because we have the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you orphans. I'm going to send you another comforter, another one of the same kind, that he may be with you forever. It's the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts that makes the presence of the risen Christ real in our lives. So our relationship with him today, we weren't living then, but I mean our relationship with Jesus Christ during the church age is a little different than what it was with those disciples who were on earth and had the benefit of his physical presence. So the moment she began to respond in the way that would be sort of typical of the way it was, Jesus is trying to say to her, no, we have to kind of make some adjustments here. She wasn't doing anything wrong. Don't get me wrong there. But it was like Jesus was saying to her, no, there's going to be a new relationship now during this church age. Then you'll notice something else he says. He says, but go to my brethren. Do you see that? But go to my brethren. Well, that's a really interesting way to refer to the disciples, isn't it? Particularly since if you go back to John chapter 15 and verse 15, he says, I call you no more servants but friends. So their relationship had progressed to the place where Jesus referred to them as friends. Now he refers to them as something different yet. My brethren. And we can understand this, but it'll take us until we get to the 
author to the Hebrews in chapter 2 and verse 10 to find a verse that really brings out the significance of this. Here it is, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 say this, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So what do we have during this church age? We have a new relationship with Christ. We have new relatives. We have a new family. We're born again into the family of God so that each time we meet someone, even if we haven't known that person before, we have a sense because the spirit bears witness between our spirits. There's some, you ever notice that sometimes you can just be around a person and something different about that person. You kind of wonder to yourself, I wonder if that person's a Christian. You can just almost sense that. And, and even if it's not someone that goes to our church or whatever, still we recognize that there is the family of God. And in the third case, not only is there a new relationship and there's a new, there are new relatives, a new family, but there's a new responsibility. See what he says, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and to your father and to my God and your God. Go say, go tell, same thing the angels said. So when we put all these things together, I mean, look at the new life he's given Mary yet again. Look at the energy that just almost like electricity infills her as she begins to understand what this is all about, this new relationship that's going to unfold during the church age, this new family that we have, these new relatives that we have, and this new responsibility, this new mission, which is going to be explained even more as Jesus unfolds it during his last days of, of ministry on the earth. And this is all true. Everything that I've just said, it's all true because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without it, you don't have any of this. Now, let me just come back and pick up on a couple of the thoughts to finish out where I'm headed with this this morning. You see, if you're looking for a place to expand on this now in the Bible, it's the resurrection that brings joy out of distress. Lots of places tell us this in the Bible, but the very greeting that Jesus gave that Matthew records in chapter 28 and verse 9 on resurrection morning, the King James says, all hail. Do you know what it literally is? Oh, joy. Oh, joy. No more distress. Joy. Joy because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The resurrection brings joy in our distress. In chapter 24 of Luke, the two are going along the road to Emmaus, and Jesus says, What manner of communications are these that ye have? as you walk one to another and are sad. That sadness wasn't going to last, right? Because when they recognized that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, all that changed dramatically. And right here in John chapter 20 and verse number 20, look at this. And when he had so said, he showed them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples, what's that word? Glad. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. So the resurrection brings joy in our distress. The resurrection brings victory in our disappointments and in our defeats. And I don't know how we could find a better place to do this in the Bible than to go for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter itself. It uses the word victory three times. 
So beginning in verse number uh, 51, I have the wrong page, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51, he says this, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. There's the first occurrence. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? There's the second occurrence. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory. There's the third occurrence through Jesus Christ. You know, I came across something that I keep trying to tell myself. I, I, whether you believe it or not, preachers really do try to, or at least any of them that are worth anything, really do try to practice what they preach. <laughs> and, and every so often I come across something that I really like and I really think it fits something that I need. And then I try to really concentrate on that. And I wanted to share this with you this morning that, you know, what, what, what we're talking about here, what this victory really means is that there are better things ahead than any we may leave behind. Just, just think about that for a minute. It might not sound like much, but there's a lot in that. There are better things ahead than any we may leave behind. So what kind of loss have you experienced? And it hurts. But the things, there are better things ahead than any we may leave behind. What kind of difficulties are you going through? What kind of things, hurts do you have? There are better things ahead than any we may leave behind. And all of these possessions that we think are so important and that we seem to cherish and that we seem to be so clingy with, there are better things ahead than any we may leave behind. I, I keep telling myself that. It's really true. It means a lot when you let that sink down into your heart. It's what the resurrection of Christ really means. And finally, the resurrection brings hope in our despair. Because Christians don't sorrow even as others which have no hope. That's what Paul told the Thessalonian believers. As a brethren, I would have not have you to be ignorant even as others, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. And you notice that it doesn't say that Christians don't sorrow. It doesn't even say that Christians don't have tears. It just says that we don't sorrow as others which have no hope. So what's the difference? It's the resurrection. And then he goes on to talk about it as he unfolds that passage on the rapture. I like another story that I read a number of years ago. Are you familiar with the name Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great Presbyterian Bible teacher and preacher of the earlier part of the 20th century? You know, he lost his first wife to cancer, and when she died, she left him with three children, three young children, the oldest of whom was 12. Now, think about that for a moment. Think about the things in life that you, that you lose and the things in life that really hurt. And it turned out that they were actually in the car together, the preacher and his three kids, they were in the car together on their way to the service for his wife and their mom. And the oldest of the girls, 12, was just kind of looking out the window to the right, kind of listlessly. And right about that time, a big truck passed on the left. And when that truck passed on the left, it cast this big shadow over the car. And it got kind of 
darker for a few moments. Well, you know, preachers are always looking for good illustrations, and he, he was really just desperate to try to figure out how he would bring the, the truth of this home to his daughter, and all of a sudden the inspiration of it hit him, and he, he looked at her, and she was looking out the window, and he, he said to her, Sweetheart, which would you rather be run over? Would you rather be run over uh, by the shadow or by the truck? And she said, kind of caught off guard with exactly where he was headed with this. She said, well, by the shadow, I guess. It can't hurt you. <laughs> and then speaking to all of his children, he says, well, you know, your mother has not been run over by death, but by the shadow of death. There's nothing to fear. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. That's what this victory is all about. Sometimes we use another illustration, and this is another one that I think um, has a lot more to it than maybe we have thought. And I found something that sort of helps to bring this out in a way that I think is about as full as anything I've ever really. But, you know, sometimes we talk about, Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's talking about well, with what body do they come and how do we sort all this out? And there's things about that that we don't totally understand. So lots of times we like the illustration of the caterpillar and the butterfly. Well, listen to this little piece. As the, as the caterpillar is to the butterfly, so our present body is to the resurrected body. There is continuity, but there's also difference. Just as the caterpillar's body is suited to the realm of the ground and the butterflies to flight through the air, so our present bodies may be suited to this world of sin, but our resurrected bodies will be suited to the life of the spirit in a world that is eternal and without limit. I like that. And I like this the best part of all. And just as it would be difficult for even an intelligent caterpillar to imagine what life would be like as a butterfly, so we struggle to imagine the resurrection life Finally, it may be helpful to remember that when we think of the caterpillar, we think of its life in terms of its becoming a butterfly. We define its present existence by its future. So too our present existence is defined by the future God has for us. So beloved, here's the point. What Jesus was saying to her that morning, he wasn't upbraiding her. He was trying to lead her into the into the the power of the truth that needs to be in our lives every day. As Christians, we have joy, we have victory, we have hope. It's not just Sunday, it's not just Easter. It's every day we have that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Did you ever ask yourself what was it that changed Peter from being the denier, from being the one that forsook the Lord to someone who was bold enough to stand on the day of Pentecost in the presence of all of those people and preach that sermon and have 3,000 pe 3, people converted. You know what the difference between the Peter of Passover and the Peter of Pentecost was? The resurrection. The resurrection, resurrection was that difference. And today, as the church of Jesus Christ, that relationship that we sustain with Jesus Christ in which we have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives to make Jesus real. That relationship that we have between brothers and sisters in Christ whereby we are not left on this earth alone, but not only do we have the Holy Spirit, but we have the brothers and sisters that comprise the body of Christ. 
and the mission that we have, something to live for, the responsibility of going and telling others about who Christ is and about his power to change. But alas, I'm afraid we don't always live that way, do we? It seems like more often than not we sort of live in a different world as, as if uh, mostly just Easter and that type of thing. The time you, you talk about the resurrection is really the only time and other than that it really doesn't have any bearing on our lives. Well, this is the time of the year when sometimes in a, in a lot of places Handel's Messiah is sung. And this story comes from an occasion when a very noted, a very noted conductor was, uh, they were doing the full dress rehearsal right before they were going to do the performance of the Messiah. And they got to that place where the, the lady soprano sings the, the verse from Job 19.25 about, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Well, this was a noted conductor. These, these people were professional singers. And it's kind of interesting in this particular case, the, the soprano who sang that part was actually the conductor's daughter. And so she sang that part, I know that my Redeemer liveth. I mean, it's, it's executed perfectly. The timing is right. The notes are right. Uh, the enunciation is right. It's just, it's flawless. It's, it's absolutely perfect. But he goes up to her, and the orchestra kind of stops, and everybody's looking at him. Hopefully, he's going to signal some type of approval. And he just stops the orchestra. And he goes up to his daughter and kind of with some sorrowful eyes, he says, my daughter, do you really know that your Redeemer liveth? Do you? Well, she kind of blushed and stammered some. And she said, well, why, yes, I, I think I do. And he said, well, then sing it. Tell me it so that I know, I will know, and all who hear you will know that you know the power and joy of it. And so he signaled, and the orchestra began again. And this time she sang it. All the notes were still perfect. Everything else was still the same as it was, but there was something different about how she sang that, such that by the time that she was done, they all had tears in their eyes. And her dad went up to her with tears in his own eyes and said to her, You do know, for you have told me so. Beloved, this is really where we are today, you know. I mean, we can't just afford to live our lives as if the resurrection has no bearing except on Easter. The resurrection is supposed to have a bearing in our lives every day because it's what makes Christianity a religion of joy, of hope, and of victory. You and I have that. Others don't. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that we've had today to look into your word and to glory in some of the white great and wonderful truths that are ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead.